0: Hello and welcome to Nourishing Books and Bites, where I chat with inspiring people about some of the great projects, events, books, and other uplifting things they're involved with to help shape a better tomorrow today. They're all people who are having conversations and taking action with their communities for fun, to create change, and sharing hope and joy along the way. I'm Anthea, the host of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast series that includes Nourishing Books and Bites episodes and is presented by Foodswell. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hello, Nicole. Now, this is a complete treat. I am feeling so lucky to have the chance to chat about books and more with you, midway between two writers' festivals that you're no doubt revelling in now that they're possible again. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Anthea. I'm speaking with Nicole Abidy, who is the creator and host of the popular podcast Books, Books, Books. And Nick, among many things, also nourishes many people as a books writer, festival moderator, and literary consultant. Nick, in early mid-March last year, two allegedly talkative women went on a road trip to Scone uh, just as we were beginning to get our heads around what might be a pandemic and the COVID social distancing and other protocols began to kick in. Can you tell me about that? Where, where, where were those talkative women heading and, and and what came out of that trip
1: for you? Well, that was really life-changing, and wasn't it? We, you and I headed off to Scone Writers' Festival, little knowing that that would be the last Writers' Festival any of us would attend for uh, 12 months and little knowing that a pandemic was about to descend. So I do remember when I got into your car and you had a bottle of sanitizer, thinking that this was something that um, (laughs) I needed to pay a bit more attention to. And then we arrived at Scone, the Writers' Festival. I remember the dates. It was over the 12th and 13th of March, which now looking back, we all realised was when things got very serious um, and when all of the uh, protocols started to kick in after that. So you and I went to that fabulous Writers' Festival. We had our first taste of social distancing with chairs being set 1.5 metres apart, bottles of sanitizer everywhere. And I do recall that weekend really um, starting to realise just how serious it was. Yes, and,
0: and we were at Scone and there were water shortages in Scone because of green algal flourishing in the dams and rivers because of runoff from the drought and the bushfires as well. I remember that resonating with me. Anyway, so consequently, you've created this wonderful podcast, Books, Books, Books. It's a gift really to so many writers and readers in in which you interview the best writers from Australia and from overseas about their new releases, providing really what you were so anxious about to provide an alternative forum and outlet to writers to promote their wonderful books during times of lockdown and the closure of large events. So that's that's been a real gift that you've um, created and shared
1: with the world. Thank you for that.
0: How is the podcast going and are, and are you enjoying the ride?
1: Oh, look, I love it, Anthony. I should go back and step and explain why the trip to um, Scone was life-changing. It was because there you and I both, I'd met a fabulous woman called Kel Butler at another Writers' Festival a year before and we reconnected with her. And just as it was starting to dawn on me that maybe the Writers' Festival's gigs I had booked in for March, April, May, June may not come about. I started talking to Kel who produces podcasts and asked her if I was to make a podcast whether she'd be able to help me because I had No technical expertise at all and found the thought of that side of it quite terrifying. So she was very enthusiastic and very encouraging. And then by the time I got home within a week, literally my diary had been cleared. Um, I had a lot of spare time on my hands and it it was a bit of a perfect storm. The thing that I love doing is interviewing writers, ideally live. And I realised that all of a sudden, that work had gone away for me, but more importantly, all these beautiful writers and publishers who'd worked for many years on their books had suddenly had the platform for promoting their books taken away. So I thought, well, I've got time in my hands and I love interviewing writers and writers festivals for now aren't going on and all these you know, beautiful authors aren't getting the chance to promote their books, let's put the two together. And I was just very lucky. I, I moved fairly quickly. In fact, almost a year to the day of this interview, my first podcast was released in late April. And uh, I wrote to publishers. I told them what I was planning to do. Because I'd been a book critic, I had I had connections to the publishers and the publicists. They were all incredibly supportive. And right from the word go, um, they started... Uh, agreeing to uh, provide the authors that I suggested. And then as it developed, they started pitching authors to me. So I started producing one podcast a year. I did that for all of last year for eight months and then... One podcast a week. I'm sorry, not one a year, one foot, one podcast a week. This year I've moved to one a fortnight, but I may segue back to one a week because I've got a lot booked in the next few months.
0: Oh, that's a real testament to how popular you are with writers and listeners. Nick, um, and you've you've interviewed some amazing people. I think you started with Malcolm Turnbull and you've spoken with Hilary Mantel and Malcolm Knox, yeah. all, all sorts of people. So, so such 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 rich episodes and diversity. Thank you. And and when we were at the Scone Writers Festival, I I met Matthew Evans, who is the author of On Eating Meat. I think I sat next to him at dinner and um, you know. Segway on a few months for me, and, and I was interviewing he with Professor Robin Alders on Eating Meat, which was fabulous.
1: Yes. That was a great episode, by oh. the way. <laughs> Thank
0: you. Nick, literature, books, ideas, the places they transport us, the ways they help us ground or orient ourselves within our lives and the human condition, if you like, is, I guess, what books and literature have long been about. And the past 12 months have certainly upped the stakes on matters existential. Climate change, bushfires, COVID, and more. It seems as though the world we knew is changing on so many fronts, and the vulnerability and precariousness of things is really all around us. Tell me, what's your sense of why why writers write, and do you think and do you have a sense that this is changing, or perhaps becoming more focused on things existential in our current strange times?
1: It's mm, a really good question, Anth. Um, One of the writers that I interviewed, and I just can't remember who it was, I'm sorry, had this great quote. He he or she, I actually just can't remember who it was, said, I write to work out what I think. And I thought that was really interesting. So I think a lot of writers, whether they're fiction writers or non-fiction writers, do really work through their own thinking processes and their own issues on the page One thing that's been very heartening, as you and your listeners will probably know, is that book sales, not surprisingly, went up in the pandemic. It's been very difficult for independent bookshops, particularly in the UK and the US, where they've been closed. Here, we've been more fortunate. But actual sales of books have gone up. Uh, And I gather from the books that are coming through now that writers have been very busy writing as well. So I would imagine, I'm pretty sure, just as reading is a source of solace for us, um, I think for writers, I imagine going through difficult and challenging times, that writing is also a source of solace for them.
0: Mm. We write and we read to understand ourselves and the world we're in, don't we?
1: And the, the other quote I love on that is, we, well, we read, I suppose we read to know we're not alone. And that's what it's all about, the interchange of ideas, reading and writing. It's, it's all about connecting with other people. Oh, that's beautiful. And Nick, have you found particular
0: books that have perhaps nourished you, especially over the past crazy year?
1: I would say all of the books that I, all of the writers that I interview have nourished me. It, it's it's completely, um, I want to say eclectic, but maybe not eclectic. It's completely subjective. The uh, So I only ask writers on if I've absolutely loved their books. So um, all of them one way or another. One obvious standout is the first person that I interviewed, who was Julia Baird, who I interviewed about phosphorescence. Now, again, I, I just, I was very lucky. I got in early with her when her book had just come out. It had only been released in late March. I interviewed her in mid-April. And the success of that book and the timing of it is just extraordinary. I interviewed her again recently at Adelaide Writers Week, um, so had a chance to reread the book, and it just reminded me of how just what an important book it is. Uh, she wrote it to describe what had helped her to get through difficult times in her own life most particular very painful uh, surgery for cancer i think she would had two or three surgeries over a five-year period and she writes about the importance of being in nature and finding time for yourself and a lot of these things that we think might sound trite but the way that she writes and the way that she explains what she does and um how how being in nature doing her swims going for walks pausing, listening, noticing how all of those things nourished her during dark times. That certainly provided a lot of ideas and solace to me. And I'm sure to anybody who's read that book, which by the way, has been a phenomenal bestseller. It sold over a hundred thousand copies, which is just uh, unbelievable. So the the short answer is every book that I've read on my, whatever it is, 50 episodes has provided solace and comfort one way or another. That one perhaps in the most direct way.
0: Yes, no, absolutely. Julia's book, such a rich, beautiful book at any time, but it certainly arrived at just the right moment for so many people, didn't it? It really did. Mm. Nick, you speak with diverse writers, some of whom seem to write quite directly in response to environmental and related issues and ideas. Let's talk about a few of those. Um, Your most recent episode, I understand, was with Claire Thomas about her new novel, The Performance. Tell me about that. Is there some sense of imminent threat or fear lurking in the context or the thinking of the performance?
1: Yes, there definitely is. That's a wonderful book. It's her second novel. And this is the premise. Three women from different generations, one in her 70s, one in her 40s, one in her 20s, are all in the audience watching the performance of a Samuel Beckett play called Happy Days. Like all Samuel Beckett plays, it raises issues of uh, existentialism and the absurdity of life. So the whole of this play takes place really in the interior minds of these three women. Each of them is thinking through uh, different issues in their lives, changes in relationships, past grief, current grief. And so the whole of the book is contained within the time in which that play is performed. But in the background, as a very important context to all of it, set in Melbourne, a huge bushfire is raging and it's advancing on Melbourne and that. Uh, impacts on each of the characters, one in particular whose partner has gone racing almost into the face of the fire to try to help her parents whose house is there. So I wouldn't probably exactly call that climate fiction, and I don't think Claire would call it that, but it's very clear that there's a sense of foreboding and threat through the whole book at the thought of this. Here, this, everybody's sitting in an air-conditioned uh, theatre and they're feeling comfortable, but on the outside, bushfires are raging.
0: Yeah, that's intergenerational anxiety and uh, connections ac- across these issues. And, and does Claire offer insights or any particular ideas? I mean, of course she does, but, but, but for living in and with the present, with that sense
1: of foreboding in the background? I think, and this is where the... Beckett played Dovetails so nicely. The play, as she said, was written over 40 years ago, so presumably it wasn't specifically directed at climate change, but it's about a woman Who's buried in the first part of the play? She's buried up to her waist in a mound of earth. She can only move from the waist up. By the second or third act, she's buried up to her neck. So she's trapped in a position on the stage with the sun beating down on her. There's one other character who comes and goes, a male character who seems to be her partner. And Claire sort of uses that as a jumping off point for her various characters to think about what it would be like to be exposed like that, to be buried with the sun beating down on you. And then she sort of really extrapolates from that and says, well, that really is the situation that we're all in right now. We're here on this planet um, being exposed to the elements that are beyond our control. And she sort of dives off from that to look at the despair that you feel as a result of that and how how do you deal with that despair? But then she also considers issues of hope, what what is there to give hope to this character and to give hope to all of us? So, yes, she, in terms of uh, answer to your question, she she suggests that there is hope and that we all need to hold on to hope. But she certainly uh, also highlights the existential despair uh, of the situation that we're all in right now.
0: Yes, so so the need for hope, but not necessarily any easy pathways there. Um. More joyfully, Nick, recently you were at the Adelaide Writers' Festival and hosted several interviews, one of which I think was with James Bradley, the author of Ghost Species. Um, I understand the catastrophe of climate change and loss in an age of planetary environmental trauma pretty much sets and is the scene. Is
1: is that right? It is. The actual book is specifically about the, it's called, James Bradley's book, Ghost Species, is called, sorry, is all about de-extincting extinct species, but most specifically about recreating a Neanderthal. So that is the sort of the essence of the book. It asks all sorts of ethical questions about the ethics of recreating another species, a Neanderthal, the responsibilities of parenting such a child, the um, as I say, the ethical issues of as it were, a bit like Frankenstein, which is one of the books he drew on of whether it's the right thing to do to recreate and, and you then you've only got one of a particular species, one Neanderthal, but against the back all of that um, and those ethical issues and the issues about parenting and about what makes someone a human being is is this Neanderthal that's been recreated human or not? All of those important issues are explored against a background of very serious climate collapse. So there are mass extinctions. There are moose and deer dying in Canada. There are whole populations of insects and reptiles and fish that are just disappearing. There's floods, there's fires, there's hurricanes overseas. In Australia, the main characters themselves directly experienced three earthquakes, which uh, have been caused by the buckling and the collapse of the Antarctic ice sheets. And Australia itself, again, the characters experience this, is suffering these incredibly long summers, which start in October and don't end in May. So the specific issue that James looks at is the ethics and the propriety and the complications of recreating a Neanderthal, but it's very much set against this larger background of climate change. And he writes of climate despair, the, um, the existential, again, the existential despair of all of us. We, we, he, he makes a point at one stage, here we all are going about our normal lives as if everything's just fine, but meanwhile uh, there's impending climate catastrophe is uh, becoming more and more of a reality.
0: Mm. And 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 some of the characters are, are living in the bush sort of survi- survi- in a survivalist mode and there are military gangs and marauders. There's a sense that society has broken down, isn't there? There is. That comes later in the book,
1: but, yes, that's, that's very significant.
0: Mm. And it's very much about, as you say, the philosophical and ethical issues around negotiating the artificial and the human and... Um, you know, the post-human, really, isn't it? Um, I understand that James works with other academic and creative writers, doesn't he, at Sydney University that include Danielle Salamaya, I hope I've pronounced her name correctly, who I know from her writing after the bushfires about omnicide, which was very poetic, but really, <laughs> really quite profound about framing human responsibility for the death and the murder of nature. I understand Danielle is speaking at the upcoming Sydney Writers Festival about her book, Summertime, in a session with Jonica Newby, uh, who's written uh, apparently a very beautiful book uh, called Beyond Climate Grief that I understand from reviews, offers really poetic, deeply personal insights about her experience, her direct experience of trauma, grief and loss, Associated with being caught in bushfires, another book that perhaps offers some practical nourishing strategies to dealing with climate grief is Rebecca Huntley's nonfiction book, uh, How to Talk about Climate Change. I think we'd all like to know how to do that. Um, in your you, you've you've interviewed uh, Rebecca, and in in the intro to your episode with Rebecca, uh, it says that she looks at how to look your children in the eye manage eco anxiety and how to use emotions such as guilt anger fear and hope to change hearts as well as minds in the climate change debate can you tell me can you tell me a little bit about that what are, what are perhaps some of the tips that rebecca offers in her book that perhaps really resonated with you look that's a fabulous book
1: and i have to mention the subtitle because it's just as important it, the, the title is how to talk about climate change The other part is in a way that makes a difference. And this is a really practical handbook. So Rebecca, who, as you would know, is a very well-known, highly respected social researcher, really started to turn her mind in a serious way to climate change after the school strikes in 2018. She has three children herself and it it suddenly dawned on her that she wanted to be able to look her children in the eye. She's very worried about what the future holds for them in terms of climate change and she suddenly gets this sense that she wants she wants them to be able to she wants to be able to look them in the eye when they say what what did you do mum what did you do to try and stop this she wants to be able to say everything in my power so this is an absolutely fantastic book it's a like a practical handbook about how to deal with your own anxieties about climate change but more important how to speak to a range of people with different views across the spectrum about climate change in a way that will make them listen. And what she talks about, she leads in by saying it's time to stop being rational, okay? The science is all in. It's time to stop appeals to the rational, to stop appeals to reason, because really even the most uh, evangelistic uh, climate deniers can't deny the science. So... She says, let's move on from that. Let's move on from appeals to reason. We need to really now appeal to the emotions. And as you've said, she then goes through a range of emotions and how, as uh, people trying to talk about climate change to uh, encourage discussion about climate change, she, she says it's an activist book to encourage others to act in a positive way how we can use the different emotions. And she gives examples, as you say, of fear, guilt, anger, despair, hope. And for each of those emotions, she talks about the pros and cons of using that emotion. So a, a good example is guilt, to try to engage in conversation and to try to make people feel guilty about what they're doing or what they're not doing. She points out that that can be a double-edged sword because that can really annoy people, the people who feel suddenly feel too guilty and start to think about their own uh, inaction, there can actually be a backlash. So that can actually be counterproductive, making them feel uh, guilty. Similarly with anger, trying to control, it's important to control your own anger because it's easy for all of us that feel so strongly about this to feel angry. But again, that can really alienate people and put them off. So she talks about, for each of those, there's a chapter on each of the emotions and she talks about the pros and cons, but she also does something really important in this book. Each chapter on each emotion opens with an interview with a person. She's interviewed people pre-COVID, needless to say. She travelled around the world and she's interviewed fascinated, fascinating people who are actually working in the field of climate change and are doing practical things, so That's where the hope comes in. As she says, she wants it ultimately to be a hopeful book. She doesn't shy away from the despair and this notion of uh, echo despair. But ultimately, she wants the book to be hopeful. And that's why she tells the stories of these people that are doing things uh, that are being proactive. And she makes the point that all of us feel better if if we are proactive and we're doing something. That's so interesting. So her book is about how to
0: talk about climate change, but the way she structured it is, it almost parallels uh what many people might be familiar with uh the emotions in the
1: stages of grief. Yes. And I should so I'll just say one, I'll just say one more thing that she gives great examples about. So, for example, how to talk to somebody that is a died-in-the-wool climate change denier. So she talks about Uncle Jack at Christmas dinner. You're sat next to Uncle Jack and he's a died-in-the-wool climate change denier. It's Christmas Day, your family's all there. Do you really want to have a fight with him on Christmas Day about this or do you want to just maybe talk about how delicious the plum pudding is? So there's just practical tips. If you're you you know, you're confronted with a diet in the wool climate change denier, how do you deal with that? And she says, well, it depends on the circumstances. If it's at Christmas dinner with your family, maybe you don't want to go there. If it's at a work function or a conference or something, yeah, you take it up to them. That's right. Uh, fit for purpose
0: <laughs> in the context, but also being gentle and... Um Connected with people about where they're at in their journey around it. Not everyone's at the same place, are they? No. Nick, we spoke recently about how artists you know, uh, especially people who are involved in the theatre and uh, in TV writing, are perplexed about or thinking about how or if to address COVID Uh, and they're, they're, they're sort of grappling with the question of whether or not they should be dealing directly with it in their artwork mm. or or not, you know, in our unsettling new normal that indeed we might all need
1: some relief from. Um, what are your thoughts on that? It's really tricky, isn't it? I mean, as I said earlier, I do think that there's a lot of writing going on, as I say, in the way that readers... Uh, find solace in reading, writers absolutely find solace in writing. So there's craft being created as we speak, whether it's films, whether it's TV series, whether it's books. And I, I did speak with a friend recently who writes for television about this issue. And he was saying, what do we do? What do we contemporary writers writing now for this year and next year do with COVID? Do we make it a feature of what we're writing? Is it there in the background? Do we discuss it? Do we create the the life of people living with sanitizers and social distancing and all of that. Now, my instinct, I'm not in any way saying it's the right one, but my personal instinct was, no, it's bad enough that we're living with this. I don't want to see it in in art as well. I want art to be, in a way, a sense of escapism. But he made the very good point that that's that's sort of unreal because then as the writer, they're sort of creating a, a fantasy world and how do you write about 2020 and 2021 Um, you know, for shows that are going to air in 2021 or 2022 and not talk about COVID or what happened. So, yeah, my own view is that I really don't want to read very much about it. I really don't want to watch very much. I I want to go to the theatre and I want to read and I want to um, watch TV series that take me away from the reality that we're living in right now. But that's a deeply personal view and I understand that a lot of people might feel differently and I also see the practical difficulties for the creators of art with that view.
0: Mm. But, but many people read to be transported. <laughs> and so, so I'm sure you're not alone in that, in that view. Well, one prescient writer sort of in this vein is Laura Jean McKay, who's the author of The Animals in That Country that was shortlisted for this year's Stella Prize. It's all about a pandemic, uh, the chief symptom of which is that its victims begin to understand the language of animals. And as the flu progresses, the, unstop- the unstoppable voices of the animals become overwhelming and many people begin to lose their minds and to find themselves in a stark, strange world in which the animal apocalypse, if you like, has further isolated people from other species. It's a question that, it's a book that asks the question, um, what would happen if we finally understood what the animals were saying? Uh, it, it sounds fascinating, and I think I'm looking forward to reading it, but I'm not quite sure. It sounds very, very dark. Um, another book that deals with the grief of the loss of animals and biodiversity, and that aims to support people to deal with that and how we collectively have, in one way or another, perhaps contributed to the loss, the horror, of the hideous bushfire season, is Animals Make Us Human. It's a compilation of wonderful short pieces about animals by 40 well-loved Australians, from writers to professional wildlife researchers. The book was instigated and edited by Leah Kaminsky, and Meg Keneally, uh, and published in late 2020. I sat in on the book launch. It was amazing. Um, And the proceeds from it go to the Australian Marine Conservation Society and the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. It's a jewel of a book, a a myriad of voices, all celebrating particular species and personal connections to nature. Nick, I understand one of your upcoming episodes is with Leah and Meg, and it's all about animals make us human. Would you like to talk about that? Yes,
1: that's a, that's a really beautiful book, Anthea. It's one of I think it's the next episode that I'm releasing as we as we speak now. Meg and Leah are both terrific writers. They're terrific speakers, and they're both passionate about animals and about nature and about wildlife. and they put this book together on the smell of an oily rag. They both, I mean, talk about people working through COVID. They put it together in something like six or seven months. Uh, all of the proceeds from sales of the books are going towards those two uh, organisations that you mentioned. And yes, what's really interesting is that they've got, they, uh, they divide it up into land, sea and sky, and they look at the animals in those categories and they have got a, uh, Diverse range of contributors. Some of them are scientists, some of them are uh, specialists, marine biologists in their area, and others are writers like they are, like Keradwind Dovey, for example. So it's a really, really beautiful book, which I can uh, highly recommend to anybody for just a very personal examination of what the loss or the uh, threat to these species actually means to us. And that, that, that reminds us how very real, you know, we're talking about James Baddeley's book and de-extinction. We've all heard about the threat to the koalas. I mean, de-extinction is a very real threat for a number of animals. And this book just reminds us about that. And I I think in the same way as the other two, particularly as Rebecca's, I think it's a bit of a um, a cry to action. Mm.
0: And Nick, as a critic, podcaster and books writer, would you like to comment on this particular book as an example of or, or a lens if you like into why literature is just so powerful and nurturing for us in times of in difficult times both both
1: as writers and as readers i think the greatest thing that good literature does is to engender empathy and compassion and that's as i say fiction or non-fiction it takes us out of ourselves it i don't want to say forces it leads us into Putting ourselves in other people's shoes, thinking about other situations, thinking outside ourselves. So, that book, for example, certainly drew my attention to a, a whole lot of things that I'd never really thought about or things that I'd taken for granted in nature. I might say, in the same way that Julia's book does, with what she talks about, just getting out. Don't you know, I, I tend to, when I go for my walks, because I'm a podcast person, listen to podcasts, but I'm trying more often now not to do that. To just walk and to listen to the birds and to look at the trees around me. And all of that sounds a little bit, um, I don't know, a bit, a bit ethereal, but it's mindfulness. <laughs> that's it. It is mindfulness. So that is something very much that I've taken from those, those books, which are nonfiction. But obviously then with books that are fiction, if you empathize with a character, you put yourself in their shoes, then you see the problems that they're dealing with, and I think you um, you become more compassionate, That's to me, is the greatest gift of literature, good literature. That's lovely.
0: Thanks, Nick. The stories are so um, simple but deeply moving, uh, I found. Um, there's a lovely quote uh, from the book that I'd like to share, perhaps towards a wrap-up, because I think it touches on quite a lot of what you've just spoken about. It's from Melanie Cheng's piece uh, entitled Looking Up, it was their call that gave them away, a high pitched crescendo discrendo cry, equal parts urgent and playful. It was my children's introduction to the yellow tailed black cockatoo. Now that an, in- an invisible pathogen has forced human beings into hibernation, I imagine those yellow cheeked cockatoos soaring high above the empty streets and abandoned playgrounds, their unmistakable cries slicing through the, un- through the sudden unpolluted air, no longer having to compete with the hum of the traffic or the drone of a plane or the beat of a jackhammer. And such imaginings offer some solace in these dark days and nights. If those magnificent creatures have taught me anything, it's that when life isn't looking up, that's exactly what we should do. Because who knows, we may just discover the answers. And if not the answers, then at least a long-forgotten sense of wonder in that much-neglected space above our heads. A sort of summation, if you like, also applicable perhaps to what books offer in times
1: like these. Absolutely, that's a beautiful, beautiful passage.
0: And Nick, how can listeners best
1: find and listen to books? Books, books. It's available wherever people get their podcasts, Cynthia, and it's also I have a website. All of the episodes are available on my uh, on the podcast page on my website. Lovely. And Nick, what about upcoming writers' festivals
0: and other events? can listeners look out for to enjoy hearing you in conversation with
1: writers? I will be at Sydney Writers Festival next week. I'm interviewing um, Sophie Laguna and Nikki Gemmel in one session. I'm interviewing crime writer Candace Fox in another. Uh, I'll be at Storyfest in Milton and Ulladulla in late June where I'm interviewing Rosalie Hamm and I can't disclose the name of the other person I'm interviewing, but it's a, a really terrific writer as well. So those are the two immediate ones that I have and I'm hoping there'll be more as the year unfolds. It is really exciting. Much as I've loved doing the podcasts and doing one a week, you, you, I must say I do lose the sense of it being on screen. I do almost feel like I'm in the room with the person. But then being back on stage before a live audience is a reminder that actually, no, that experience is completely different. And I I just love it. Apart from anything else, I really love to see the writers get the um The kudos and the love that they deserved is after sessions, you see the writers, they're signing their books and queues of people coming up to talk to them. Just with Julia Baird, that was just a great example in Adelaide. She had people coming up and giving her letters, like standing in the queue for her to sign the books And I watched as some people handed her little notes and things. That's right. All about the the connection and the community, the actual visceral
0: human interaction is what we've all been missing, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Oh, my
1: goodness. Mm. Nick, so lovely to chat with you. Thanks thanks very much for joining me. Anthea, thank you so much for having me on your show, which I um, think is absolutely terrific and which I learn from. Every time I listen to another episode, I feel like I learn so much. So thank you so much for um. Having me as a guest on your show. Thanks, Nick. And from both of us, I'd like to send a call out and a
0: special thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting, who is, of course, a great friend and mentor to us both, Holla Kel.
1: Here, here, and big hello and love from me too, Kel. Couldn't do it without you. I've been speaking with Nicole Aberdeen, who is the host of the great podcast,
0: Books, Books, Books. If you haven't found it already, please do subscribe and enjoy. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, and books and bites, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing. Or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.